When I was young, there was a lot of truth in the capital T. So it's still things like don't harass women, but there's less truth than there used to be. There's more uncertainty about the world. Therefore, we need to be more flexible and recognize there's multiple sources of truth and there's less truth to the capital T and truth changes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a socially conscious applied research firm that uses behavioral science to improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Struck, Research Director at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guest today is Carl Moore, professor at McGill University in Management and Neurology, keynote speaker, and author of the forthcoming book, OK Boomer, Working with Millennials and Generation Z. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the postmodern workplace, where many perspectives and many truths collide. Carl, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brooke. Before we launch, so to speak, please tell us a bit about yourself and what you're up to these days. Well, I grew up in Toronto, went to school in LA and Boston at USC and Harvard, and then came back and worked for IBM for 11 years in Toronto, Regina and Hamilton in sales, global product management. Decided to do my PhD for some obscure reason, and then went over and taught at Oxford for five years. When our son, Eric, was four, he came home and he said, Dottie, I need a boss. And my wife and I, who's from Quebec City, decided that was time to leave. Came about 20 years ago to work with Henry Mintzberg at McGill, one of the great management thinkers of the world, and have written three books on globalization, the ancient medieval world, when I was at Oxford and early McGill, and have moved on to something perhaps slightly more relevant. I've got a book on introverts, ambiverts, and extroverts, and then the book, which is uh, with the publisher now that we're talking about today is about moderns and postmoderns and how to work with millennials and Generation Z. I'm really curious about this distinction you draw between moderns and postmoderns. So how do these terms map onto the generational labels? Most listeners will probably be more familiar with boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, and so forth. Well, something where the postmodern worldview was largely taught to people with university degrees over 45. The postmodern worldview has been taught to people under 35 with university degrees. Now, the idea is that if you have a high school education or junior college, the ideas would impact you, but not as much as if you go to university where you wrestle with these topics for a number of years. You may have noticed, Brooke, since you're probably between 35 and 45, that I missed you. I assume you're over 35. Is that a fair assumption? It is not, but thank you very much for assuming I have wisdom beyond my years. So something where over 45, I'm convinced that you were taught a a modern worldview because of the education of the time. Under 35, I'm pretty sure as well. But between 35 and 45, it depends on what subject you were taught at what university in what country. But the ideas of modern thought were started in France, and we do and should make fun of French intellectuals, but they did have a huge impact on the world of postmodern thought and spread from there to the U.S., to Harvard and Duke's English departments and kind of spread out from that. That was decades ago where I talked to uh, faculty and deans at every faculty at McGill from dentistry to law to medicine, and it's all postmodern, and it has been for decades. This is important because of the idea of worldviews. We develop worldviews typically between age 17, 18, and 25, more or less, which is the age when you're in university particularly. It goes back to the Roman Empire, the Roman army, and cohorts. That's the idea of a cohort that goes back to ancient Rome. But what we see today is that events define us. So my father, during the Depression, left the farm at age 16 and rode the rails, as we called back then. So as the train left Rosetown, Saskatchewan, and gathered steam, literally steam, it was a steam engine, young men would run along to jump aside and get on top illegally. And there were men called bulls from the Canadian National would trace them down and you'd go to jail. Quite a different career path. So my dad evidently ran fast. 
got to Toronto and was 40 years with the same organization because it meant security, which if you grew up in the Depression, that was incredibly important. When I left IBM, which stood for a job for life back then, after a dozen years and moved to Toshi because he doubled my salary, he said, that's not reason enough. You don't want to give up job security just for mere money. But I was a boomer. It was boom times and life was good. Different set of priorities based on the experiences he had. And it's interesting because when you talk to students, and I've taught at McGill for about 20 years, Oxford for five, if you graduated as I did in boom times, you have a very positive view of the economy because I had multiple job offers. Everybody did. But if you graduate in a recession, and you've got to really struggle, you have a more negative view of the world and the economy, and these things stay with you. So one is that you have certain life experiences. The second thing is you're taught a worldview in your education. And some of the big issues we think about are truth. Who has truth? What is truth? Hierarchy. Who's in charge? How much authority do they have? The importance of analysis and reason versus emotions. So these are some of the big themes that come out in postmodern versus modern thought that impact how we view the world, how we want to be managed, and how we lead as well. Yeah, you mentioned the French intellectuals earlier on that we sometimes tease, but there's quite a bit to unpack there. I mean, this idea after, I guess, after the First World War, this kind of collapse of some enlightenment ideals of truth and this conflict between really two schools of thought, one believing that power flows from truth, that if you know the right thing, that's what gives you legitimacy to direct others versus the other way around, truth flowing from power, right? That truth is actually just a covert word for politics. Those are two really, really different ways of viewing the world. And so I gather what you're talking about in this transition around the notion of truth from modern to postmodern is that transition from the idea that there's one center of truth and from that flows one center of power to this inversion where there are many different centers of power and from those centers of power flow different sources of truth. No, absolutely. It's something where the modern worldview was a rejection of what came before it. And partly it's saying we were the epitome of human evolution. So everything before us was lesser. And they rejected, you had modern art, which rejected the great Dutch Impressionists. You had modern architecture, which said the Greeks and the Romans, go away. What did they know? You had that in history and so on. So virtually every discipline. And they rejected some wonderful things and some things they should have rejected for sure. So it was an arrogant view of the world that said, we are the pinnacle. And I remember my grandparents lived in houses that had no plumbing, had no toilets. They were here. My brother and I did better. And we assumed the world would get better because of science, because of how clever human beings were. The world would go on this incredibly improving road, where today my students assume they will not do as well as their parents because of climate change, because of racial inequality, because of events in the world. And they're probably right. So their view would be to have own a house on the South Shore with a four-bedroom house with a swimming pool and two cars and commute to Montreal is wrong. Where Boomer saw it as kind of, you know, there's a famous bumper sticker, Brooke, he who dies with the most toys wins. And when I show that to my students, they're horrified by just the sheer shallowness of the boomers. But I remember that we measured ourselves by the kind of car we drove, the kind of clothes we had, our address, where we got to travel, were you in the business class or not. And there was a sense of defining ourselves by how much money we made, as long as it was legal and very broad guidelines, you could do whatever you wanted. And if you had the money, just go ahead and buy a lot of plastic bottles. The world system was all right. We recognize now that that was uh, extremely foolish thinking, but the time it made sense. So there's a set of things which have really fundamentally changed. Why? Because the modern worldview failed, fell short, and proved inadequate. Hence, post 
modern, that is after modern thought, which says some of those assumptions we've changed. You mentioned science innovation and this idea of perpetual progress, which seems to be faltering at this point. If we look at the structure of the economy right now and the importance of innovation and the pace of change, is the postmodern worldview not also better adapted to a world that is changing quickly, where in fact, you need to be responding to, let's say, weak signals that your organization sees from lots of different corners. It's just too hard to keep track of everything that's changing in an ecosystem from one centralized place. So you need to have eyes and ears all over. There's two big schools of strategy. Henry Mintzberg and Miguel called emergent strategy, then Michael Porter at Harvard called deliberate strategy. We like Michael. We gave him an honorary doctorate four or five years ago, and I spent an hour interviewing him for the Globe. And I, he taught me back at Harvard a gazillion years ago when we were both young. His approach is the old school of deliberate. The CEO creates a strategy with McKinsey, Boehner, BCG consultants, and they with the senior team present it to the rest of us schmucks. And we salute and go, that's it. We're going to do it. Now, in a world that doesn't change, that might make sense. Back in the late 70s when IBM, I was in plans and controls, which sounds like the evil part of Star Wars. What we did was we assumed that we'd be 5% bigger than the year before. And that was a safe assumption. Today's world is much more turbulent. We pivot. We've got to change. We have the Uberization of every industry. So CEOs come to class and they say, who's the Uber of your industry, Brooke? Embarrassingly, I said that to the head of Uber Canada and he, everybody laughed because he goes, well, we're Uber. And I said, that's a great point, actually. But it's something where we have enormous amount of change. So in deliberate strategy, how you make strategy is boundary spanners are really central. That is young people, Zs and millennials who have one foot in the real world turbulent and one foot in the organization. They're salespeople, they're customer service, they're engineers, they're out there. They give us feedback which then what senior management should do is encourage innovation, a thousand flowers to bloom, so that everybody does innovative stuff, but read my lips, no new budget. So do it frugally. Jugad is a word we ran into in India, frugal innovation. The job of senior management is not to have the ideas, which is a relief to them, but to spot good ones that come throughout the organization, choose which ones to scale up, spread across the organization, and we have new strategies. So that's the more important approach today if you live in a turbulent world. Now, there are exceptions. So the head of um, Air France, Ben Smith, I interviewed Ben. He was the president of Air Canada, passenger airlines, and went over to run Air France. When he goes and decides which is the new fleet they're going to have, he gets some real experts, and it's billions of dollars. He goes to the board, and it's his decision with extra advice. He's not asking flight attendants or pilots. It comes from the top down. This is the nature of the decision. But increasingly, we live in a turbulent world where boundary spanners, young people, are important to the strategy making process, though it's the senior people whose jobs are on the line, rightly so, who make the end decision, but they do it based on other people's ideas, largely not their own. Let's dig into that a little bit. Let's start with the boundary spanners, the postmoderns themselves. What is it that they're seeking in their workplace engagements? And how do these contrast to the expectations of moderns? Well, something where it's interesting because I wrote a Forbes blog was about, uh, okay, boomers, let's stop making fun of uh, millennials. And what the point I was making is that I teach undergraduates, so I talk to my friends who are more my age and tell them, and they roar with laughter at the foolishness of young people. And we see that with the gymnasts at the Olympics for the U.S. that stood away, and then tennis players were called from Japan at the French Open. So the world kind of, part of the world, boomers, mocked them and said, suck it up. We've had to do this. You do that. But then the world kind of said, wait a minute, these young women are onto something. That mental health, in the case of the gymnast, she kind of lost at a certain point. And if you lose it, you could really hurt yourself. Like there was a physical reason not to do this if your mind's not fully there. 
So there's a change there in terms of how we view the world and our priorities. What I would argue that the boomers make fun of, then a couple years later, want the same things. So I think there's an alignment, particularly the boomers who are older, their mortgages paid off, their kids are growing up, and they go, what's the point of it all? So they and the Zs are kind of a natural group to work together. It's the older millennials and the Xers and some of the boomers that wrestle with this, just saying, that's different than we were brought up with. But what we need to do is say, we need to learn from the front lines. If you don't listen to Zs and young millennials, you're a jerk. The old school of going out and saying, here's what we're going to do, and here's my vision, go forward, go do it, is seen as rude, insulting, and authoritarian, where we need to spend more time listening and getting their side. So a good manager, a good leader would tend to listen more than they talk today. And there is a time to make a decision. There is a time to go forward and show leadership. So David Benson runs Aldo, big shoe company around the world. And David's six, seven, six, eight. 300 pounds. He's not overweight. He's just giant. And he's the CEO. So when he shows up, we all know who he is. Now, if he goes to a strategy meeting, he knows what he knows in his head already, Brooke. He's already got that down. But if he starts talking as an extroverted CEO at the beginning, everyone will be quiet. And afterwards, they'll go, that's why you're the CEO, David. I love it. So what he's learned to be is, as an extrovert, shut up and listen and get to say, Brooke, what do you think? Susan, what do you think? Sam, what do you think? What happens is what's in his mind for strategy evolves through that conversation. Happy thought at the end, he's CEO, he gets to decide. But after he's listened to the younger people, got their input, and sometimes they disagree, and that's fine. You know, that's just discussion. He gets to decide, but his ideas have changed since he walked in the room by your input. So it's this idea of listening more, taking on board the input. At a certain point, we got to make a decision and move forward. The more senior people get to do that, we're reasonably happy if they do, if they listen to us and don't have to, you know, slavishly fall down in front of every one of our ideas, but at least listen with respect and take on board some of our thinking. So what the postmoderns are seeking is to have their voices heard and to actually have some input, not necessarily into making the final call about which direction things are going to go, but at least seeing that the inputs that they're providing are somehow integrated into that decision-making process. It's not about winning every argument, but it is about participating in every conversation. The question is, you know, at a very high level, who has truth? And this is not a new question. You remember in the New Testament, Pontius Pilate, when they brought Jesus to him to crucify, he said, truth, what is truth? And he washed his hands of the matter. We've wrestled with this as humanity for a long time. And if you ever, two people witness an accident, you have different views of it. And partly that's fine, just different emotional responses and so on. But the idea of saying truth would lie to some degree with the boundary spanners. Therefore, we need to make room for them. On the other hand, the older people have some experience and go, yeah, 20 years ago, we tried to fail because of this reason. So you got to meld that together to come to some sense of what is the truth. When I was young, there was a lot of truth in the capital T. So there's still things like don't harass women, but there's less truth than there used to be. There's more uncertainty about the world. Therefore, we need to be more flexible and recognize there's multiple sources of truth and there's less truth to the capital T and truth changes. So I say to his older people, I'm not as wise as someone my age 20 years ago was. And the half-life of my wisdom is shorter than it used to be. Not because I'm a bad person, it's just lessons I learned 30 years ago are largely irrelevant, not entirely, but largely irrelevant in today's world. This was before the internet broke. That's how old I am. So something where you go like, just guys, it was a different world back then. Put aside. So when I teach executives, I say to them, I interviewed uh, Martin Dempsey, who is the 
Joint Chiefs of Staff for Obama, the most senior general in the U.S. And one of the things he said was, Carl, generals fight the battles of their youth, which is a famous saying in military. The point he's making, he was taught by men and women that would be in Vietnam by people from World War II. So they taught him about strategy, largely relevant for Vietnam. And then he was a general in Desert Storm, and he recognized what he was taught as a young man, what he learned in Vietnam, very compelling lessons. And what Desert Storm was, was a very different world. Some lessons were your buddy in the foxhole is your closest friend and he or she better have your back. Because literally, you might be shot unless he's got your back. So those are profound military lessons from the Roman times, but so much more had changed. So he said, generals fight the battles of youth. So I asked older executives, what lessons do you throw over the side of the boat? When I did it at CN, I said, train to be uh, with the customer. But I said, what are you throwing away because they're no longer relevant? And that's a question older people must ask themselves increasingly. Okay, I want to start pulling this apart and asking about what it is that people can do to lean into this trend. And I want to say, pull it apart. I mean, I want to ask about different levels or areas within an organization. So the questions that you just framed there, what are you tossing over the side? What are you jettisoning? That's a good kind of thought starter. But in terms of action, what can senior executives do to lean into this trend? Well, in the book, I've got six lessons. So uh, let me just talk a couple of them. One is very fundamental, listen more, talk less. So, you know, this is stuff we touched on that. What it is that you got to listen to young people from a viewpoint of strategy and a viewpoint of being an effective leader with them. So we've gone from an age of deference to an age of reference. So in the past, we defer to the older people. I'm slightly bitter about this, bro, because just as I get older, it goes away. But anyway, young people are taught my story is good as your story. So from a viewpoint of leading them, you need to take that on board and listen to them. So there's the strategic part, kind of the hard-nosed business person. Then there's the part about leadership. You just need to understand that they believe their story is as good as yours. It's just the nature of it. So you need to spend more time listening, as we've talked about, deferring to their insights. To be very much an active listener is kind of the thing where that's one of the skill sets of a leader is to be that active listener where you're very much engaged what they have to say, that you feedback what you've learned from them. And it's around their ideas rather than your ideas. So another key thing is the need for feedback among younger people. Three things feed this. One is video games. Our son plays video games. I've tried, but there's enormous amount of feedback all the time. Social media, it's amazing. I mean, it's embarrassing, but sometimes get the morning, I put something on LinkedIn. One of the first things I do is how many likes did I get? So social media, we get enormous amount of feedback of what works, what doesn't, what resonates with people. And you know, we work on wording to get it right. So social media really impacts our desire for feedback. Then we have helicopter parents. Our, like I remember as a boy with the Bobby Emery, we'd go ride our bikes at age 10 in Toronto to a giant park by ourselves. It's called Robles. We'd be horrified if a parent did today. But just two boys, and the assumption was any man or woman would help you if you asked them for help, even if they had a trench coat on. So it's sort of thing where today we'd go, no, don't do that. But So parenting is was much more relaxed among the boomers' parents, but it isn't today. What we see is also in school, my wife teaches grade five, but there's so much more feedback. So part of what Generation Z are looking from their managers is feedback. And so they want feedback a lot more in the past. And I see this among my students. To a certain point, I say to them, Brooke, I've run out of feedback. I'm now making it up. I'm just grasping it out of the air. Ignore it. What strikes me as particularly interesting is that they argue with my feedback, probably because in the past, when I give them two or three points, they probably couldn't argue it. But when you get down to number five or six and go, I'm not sure I agree. I've learned to go, you may be right. 
as a manager, in the past when I was an IBM manager, I five percent of them and thinking, what do I say to Brooke after the meeting? Where today it's more like twenty percent of twenty-five percent. A big part of my time as a manager is go, Brooke did a presentation. Brooke is gonna eagerly turn to me after the meeting as we get in the car or in the metro is gonna say, How can I improve? And if I just say, Hey, did a good job, Brooke, it's all fine. You're not going to be happy. You want feedback to improve. And that's a good thing. So we got to think about how do we get more feedback to people? It's a bigger part of the managerial job is giving feedback. And that's good because they want to improve. They want to get better. So it's part of our job. One of the interesting parts of feedback is annual review, which in the Valley, I go down the Valley a couple times a year before the pandemic to see what's going on there because they're five years ahead of Toronto, Montreal, and the rest of the world. So I go down there and thousands of alumni and I used to go there when I worked for Hitachi and IBM. So I've been going for 30 years or something. The annual review, I remember doing them. I hated doing it and I hated getting it. And you spend an hour making sure I understand I'm not a top performer. So you got to point out my flaws, what's wrong, and it's just depressing just to get me to be number two instead of a number one. They've largely done away with annual review and go, let's do reviews and feedback on a very regular basis to improve and up my game. So I think we need to take on board getting rid of that performance review on an annual basis and doing it much more often. I think feedback is an important area that we need to change in terms of how we approach people. If I'll, I'll continue on to the third of the six points, maybe we can take a break for a minute there, is that when I was young at IBM, Brooke, if anybody got emotional in a meeting, we'd stop the meeting and have coffee. As soon as emotion reared its ugly head, emotion was lower than analysis. Analysis way up here, emotions here, they're just not on the same plane where postmodern thought, what we teach young people is that emotions and thought are similar, partly because what is thought? What is truth? Spreadsheets lie. Data is not always garbage in, garbage out. These are some things we understand that people question increasingly that, but what emotions are much more valued than in the past. So a colleague of mine, Kui Wee, was a PhD from McGill's now at NCF for years, and I've worked with him on this, came up with a five forces model, not of emotional quotient, because you and I have emotional quotient, Brooke. It's that as a manager, I got to manage the emotions of my team. And so part of what a leader does is manage emotions and spend time thinking about what specific action do I take, for example, to get fun and passion. Because if you want innovation and creativity, you need fun and passion, you need a lightness. So what do I do in order to get that, make room for innovation and make room for creativity and a lightness and a lucidness rather than let's do it by the book. And there's some things you've got to do by a process and by book or our expenses, for example. So it's a matter of saying part of this is saying emotions and analysis are similar. We've got to spend more time on emotions and actively managing it and thinking about it because that's the postmodern we live in. So that's three of the points. Maybe we can dig into one really needy example. Recently, I've been reading a lot of posts, tirades, if you will, against PowerPoint, against decks, and the kinds of meetings and the kinds of conversations that those foster. So you were talking about senior executives trying to get input, frontline employees. One kind of mental model I have of how that works is the frontline employee has an idea that they want to send up the chain. The first person that that's got to get past is their direct manager. So their direct manager has some role as a facilitator to play there, a bit of a, a gatekeeper and a bottleneck. I think in larger bureaucratic organizations, that's often the bane of the existence, right? Is that there's just far too much filtration going on and not enough making it up. Part of the role there is to facilitate, but when that gate is passed, when that facilitation has happened, what is the kind of conversation that we want to be having between a frontline employee and a senior executive? And is a PowerPoint deck all nicely beautified and polished and refined really the right vehicle to have that kind of conversation? It tends to promote this presentation of an absolutely bulletproof idea. You know, everything is totally airtight. It's hermetic. It's not actually about 
talking about it. It's almost about narrating your way through slides. Obviously, I'm describing a not very ideal presentation, but you get my point. You just get to more of a conversation. Remember, I co taught my seal class with uh, Dick Evans, who ran Alcan, and Paul Tellier, who ran the, the government from CN and Bombardier. And part of it is they don't want to go through all that, partly because they know it's crafted and you avoided any holes or difficulties. So it's something where you get into the substance of it, the idea, and get into a real conversation is what we want to do rather than just something which is put together and it's about communication skills as opposed to about discussion and thought and kicking around ideas. So that's something where I see more and more of that out there and less certainty about it's just guaranteed that the logic is impeccable, partly because we have competitors. So it's more of an evolving of an idea rather than this immaculate conception that is perfect from birth. What are some ways that senior executives can promote more of that kind of conversation? It sounds from what you're saying, part of it is changing the expectations of the outcome of the meeting is not necessarily just approval. Okay, this thing now either lives or dies. It's that we're going on to run a larger scale experiment. And so what the conversation is that kind of leads up to that is here's the history of small experiments that we've done, each bigger than the one before and what we've learned along the way. And the capstone of that conversation is this is the next experiment that we'd like to run that is big enough that we want your approval to do this. We need your buy-in in order to go and run an experiment at that scale. Is that right? Partly it's buy-in because they have authority to sign for a million dollars or whatever. But it's also that they generally go, here's the data we came up with. Here's our assumptions. Here's how we view it. What do you think? Where they're getting someone with more experience, more seniority to put their oar in the water as well and think about it. I think it's partly as senior managers have got to spend more time with junior people, with Zs and millennials. And part of that is just having breakfast. Part of it is going down and sitting in the company cafeteria. I remember CN, it was a Crown Court. So Brian Mulroney asked his clerk, Paul Telly, to go run it. Two things he said he did the first day, which were quite interesting. One is he took the picture of the Queen down, this is no longer the government or the Prime Minister, and put up a stock ticker from the TSE, the Toronto Stock Exchange. He was saying, we have a new boss. Our share price, it's no longer the prime minister's, it's the share price. They will judge. Then he also, he closed the executive dining room and had the executives go eat with the average CN person. And what he encouraged by his behavior is just go down there and just sit at a table and just listen to the men and women. And they go, uh, Mr. Tellier. And he go, yeah. He says, so what'd you guys do today? And he showed an openness to listening to them and hearing what they had to say. So I think that sense of getting through the filters. I remember I did the first study at IBM of PCs in Canada. So I go to present to the president of Canada, 14,000 people, all five of my bosses were there. But the CEO knew that. And I was like 24, 25, too young to know better. And so at the end of it, he put his arm and said, uh, let's go down and sing Christmas carols. It was December 22nd. And back in the day, we sang Christmas carols. He wanted to actually knew what I felt. And I remember looking back and my managers were all afraid I would tell him. But I was too young. They couldn't punish me. But he knew, Carl Corkin was his name. He knew that all these filters existed. So a good senior executive knows those filters there and tries to get away with them. Listen to people one-on-one or in small groups to younger people. So I think part of it is getting through those filters. And this is a well-recognized problem, but we've got to be a creative doing it. Especially in the age of remote work, it feels like so much of what has been collapsed or closed down is all of those spaces. And I literally mean physical spaces for those spontaneous interactions to occur. All of the serendipity is gone because you don't cross paths on the way to and from the coffee machine. You don't just accidentally find yourself at the cafeteria lunch table with X, Y, or Z person from the organization. How do we bring back those spaces for serendipity? 
It's really tough. Some people have done it on Zoom somewhat, but I think it's going back to the office. Like at the Guild, we're starting classes in a week or two. And I'll be in there person. I was down today and there's some people there. And it was genuine pleasure to see colleagues I haven't seen from a year and a half. But at the Cafe Castell, Peel and uh, Sherbrooke right in front of McGill, I go there for coffee once or twice a day. Where you're in line and someone in front of you just says, hey, Carl, I was thinking, or I'm more apt to pitch them an idea. I'm not going to set up an appointment or Zoom meeting to see you. But if I run into you walking into the Brockman building and just say, I'm thinking we'll go to Ghana next year. What do you think? There's that sense of serendipity and of connection, which happens in the office, in the coffee shop and things like that, which it's hard to replicate. People have tried, but it's tough because it's more apt to, oh, Brooke, I've been thinking about something you said the other day. I haven't seen you for a month. But on the other hand, I'm not going to set up a Zoom meeting for random thought. It just seems silly. And after 30 seconds ago, uh, was there anything else? You go, no. And, you, you know, it's all very embarrassing. But some organizations have done a few things at the margins on that. But I think being back in the office at least a few days a week, health allowing, will be great. Yeah, this is a big question that's been on my mind. It seems like there are kind of different thresholds that you need to meet in order to have certain events take place. One of the nice things about moving from at least some of the email world onto Slack, for instance, or another direct messaging or instant messaging service is that the threshold for what's sufficient to warrant a message is lower in these, you know, instant message or direct message yeah, yeah. environments. Yeah, and well, so you can work well for that. Yeah. You can have much more casual conversations by those kinds of services than you can. But it still seems like there's a threshold below anything that we have in the digital ecosystem right now, the remote ecosystem. And below that threshold is a lot of really, really valuable stuff. Yeah. No question about it. What are the kind of stopgap measures that we can use? What are some of the practices that you've seen out that are showing a bit of promise at, at accessing this really low threshold stuff? So we talked earlier about the senior executive and having a scheduled meeting where there's an agenda and there's probably, there's not just a purpose to the meeting, but there's an agenda, you know, four or five points that you'll hit in order to try and fulfill the purpose of the meeting. It seems like there's a whole other category of type of encounter that we need. It's not just about doing away with agendas. It's about re thinking the problem entirely. Are you seeing any promising ideas out there that seem like they might be getting some traction on this? Well, something where part of it is in meetings, what's randomly happening out there? Like just what random thoughts have struck you? Prim interactions with clients or customers or with suppliers. And just what are things you're thinking about? So it doesn't have to be some big thing. It's just a thought. It's a notion rather than, you know, some idea. But it's just something where we're looking to connect the dots of various people. And other people go, yeah, I've seen that too. And you might identify a trend. So I was going to be really for that kind of more relaxed conversation without a, a big agenda, but more just what's happening out there and catching up on the turbulent environment, customers and their needs and so on, what your competitors are doing. So I think there's just that room for that more relaxed conversation as part of it, which is easier to do in the office for sure. Somewhere, I think uh, I've read that the, well, one of a billion definitions of intelligence is the ability to entertain an idea without being committed to it. It seems like we are missing opportunities for intelligent discussion. And what I mean by that is we're missing the opportunities to put out ideas for conversation to which we are not committed. You wouldn't call a meeting to talk about something that was just a curiosity, something that stood out. If you have a meeting, it's because you've got a point, you have a purpose, you have something to say. How do we create that space to put something out there that we are not committed to so that we can be intelligent together rather than intelligent only each on our own? Yeah, I think it's a matter of just making part of that agenda. Send us articles you're reading, just things are striking you. Because we're looking for low amperage or low power signals before they come and slap you in the face and go, self-evident, this is happening. But just something where 
just the, the initial signal out there that we may misinterpret. But I think just making room for those conversations is something that senior people have got to do. All right. And uh, I think lastly, one of the questions I'd like to ask you about is the transition point. We're working in organizations right now where we've got both moderns and postmoderns working together. And certainly it tends to be the case that as you move up the hierarchy of the organization, you're going to get more boomers and Gen Xers. So it'll be more modern at the top, but not necessarily more postmodern at the bottom. You can still have a lot of rank and file employees who are Gen Xers and boomers. So how is it that senior executives can manage this transition group within their organization where they've got people with an entire spectrum of expectations working at the front line? Well, I think the uh, older people, the boomers like myself and the Xers, have become postmodern in their thinking, but they were taught a modern worldview. So they're open to it. Pretty could you ex- help explain them why young people think the way they do. They go, that's a good point. They would largely agree with it. And you also see that some of the boomers will retire or go more part-time or step down from the really demanding roles. And so, plus you have high potentials, which are younger people that are going to jump through the system more rapidly and become in charge rapidly. And I've taught high potentials and a number of them running big companies now in Canada. We recognize them as the anointed. So it's kind of, there are some things where that age hierarchical approach no longer works, is no longer accepted. I think there's some ways we see some of that happening. Central idea here is reverse mentoring, where I would argue 20, 25% of time, young people should be teaching me and mentoring me because they're in the turbulent world, they're more with it, they understand where the world's going. Now, when I say to the students, they're delighted. And I usually follow up and say, so what's the flip side of that? And very rarely does an undergraduate point out that 75% of the time I'm mentoring you. There's still a big role for me to mentor young people. But the newish idea is that young people will mentor me as a hard-nosed business person. Because if I want to make profits and be successful, I need to listen to them to find out about emergent strategy. I need to find out what's going on in the world. Where's the world going? Where's that turbulence? What direction is taking us? So I think that idea of reverse mentoring is a very important one. And one final point is about purpose, that young people are looking for purpose. And it goes back to the he who dies with the most toys bumper sticker is that it was shallow and we looked at share prices where when you look at climate change, you look at what's happening in places like Afghanistan, you look at racial inequities. We have some big problems that our organization should make some contribution towards, not merely paying our senior executives a lot of money. So I think that's an important thing, too, is to get that purpose of the organization front and center. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to hire as many Generation Z and millennials as you thought you could. Is there really are, and I can tell you this from the classroom, absolutely attracted to that. Carl, thanks very much. This has been a really vibrant and stimulating conversation. And I think especially as we transition towards more hybrid forms of work, it'll be very, very helpful for us and for all of our listeners to be thinking through these questions. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Brooke. Always a pleasure to talk. If you'd like to learn more about Applied Behavioral Insights, you can find plenty of materials on our website, thedecisionlab.com. There, you'll also be able to find our newsletter, which features the latest and greatest developments in the field, including these podcasts, as well as great public content about biases, interventions, and our project work.